very good morning to all of you. Everyone staying cool? <laughs> Jamie and I just got back from a 4,000 trek to Colorado and back, and I can assure you Kansas is hot, um, maybe not quite as hot as South Carolina, but Colorado um, was absolutely beautiful. Um, so picture me uh, for the last few weeks um, sitting there on the deck with a nice hot cup of cider in the morning and it being about 55 degrees. Um, it was absolutely wonderful compared to what we have had to come back to, but um, by God's grace and mercy, we, um, the Beverly Hillbillies have returned to South Carolina, so it is good to be back with you. Um, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, um, turn with me to Galatians 5, these two lists. My task is somewhat difficult this morning. It may look very simple because you are given these two lists, um, these lists of uh, fleshly things and these lists of very spirit-filled things. And I wish I had about 60 minutes to unpack this whole context for you, but I don't. I have 20, and so what I want to do is just take a few steps back and kind of get to the heart of what I think Paul is trying to communicate to uh, the believers in Galatia, not namely, specifically, but also to us living in Somerville, South Carolina in 2016. So let's launch together. One of the most profound statements that I have really ever heard about the human condition was one that I heard as a, um, just a wee little boy. Um, it was spoken by one of my heroes of the day, and his name was Popeye the Sailor Man. <laughs> you might uh, remember Popeye, some of you, um, when he was frustrated, when he wasn't quite sure what to do, or he felt inadequate, he had a phrase that he would typically say that would come out of his mouth, and it was, I am what I am. Um, he was not a sophisticated guy by any stretch of the imagination. He had never been in therapy as far as we know. He was way out of touch with his inner self and his inner child. Um, he was not a highly educated man as far as we know, but he knew who he was. Popeye knew who he was. He was a simple, seafaring pipe-smoking, olive-oil-loving sailor man. And he wouldn't pretend to be anything else. I am what I am. And at times, in the moments of our moral depravity, that is our sinfulness, right? We have said these words, haven't we? In our marriages, sometimes we just want to say to our spouse, I am what I am, right? I'm human. And when we look at this list here of all these immoralities, we, we could probably say, if we're honest with ourselves, that maybe we haven't done all of these things in some stretch or form. But we look at this list and we, we say, you know, I am what I am. This is, this is my life. These are my faults. These are my frailties. It's really... The sad cry of the human race. I am what I am. And Galatians 5 just stands really as a perpetual reminder of our sinfulness, our moral depravity as human beings. And yet, 
Here's the key this morning. And yet, God never ceases to remind us to be good. Right? As, as our Heavenly Father, God never ceases to remind us that you ought to be good. Right? Do we spontaneously, as Tyler said last week, do we just spontaneously and naturally and consistently humble ourselves and love our neighbors as ourselves in meekness and kindness? Do we have right attitudes and actions that come out of us naturally as light and heat come out of the sun? Right? We know they don't. And God knows that they don't. And so we must, we must this morning be reminded of what is right and what will keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God. And so what Paul does for us this morning is he gives us a list of bad things and he gives us a list of good things. And that's what we get here in Galatians 5, 19 through 23. And so I, I think this is what Paul is doing. So as I, again, my task is to take steps back. We can't exhaust this list. I wish we could, but we can't. And so what I want to do in my task this morning from the pulpit is say what Paul is exhorting. And I think he's exhorting this. He's exhorting us to think this morning of what it biblically means and how it biblically ought to think about virtue. Let me say that again. Paul is exhorting us this morning to think biblically about virtue. So what I want to do in our remainder of time is just take three steps, right? I'm going to use his language of walking in verse 25 and just say, let's take three key steps to thinking biblically about virtue. Here's number one. This is the key step. Number one, beware of the danger of abusing moral teaching. That's number one. Be aware of the danger of abusing moral teaching. In other words, there's a great danger, I think, in giving morally depraved people a list of right and wrong things. It is a danger of the law that we've seen through all of Galatians, right? Because that's, that's what they're doing in Galatia. Eat this, don't eat this. Do this, don't do this. And so there's a capability here as we look at this text to say, this is real simple, folks. This is what you ought to do. Do this and don't do this. It can become a game of church playing. Do this, don't do this. The danger can become behavioral change and not heart change. Let me say that again. The danger is this. It can become about behavioral change and not heart change. The danger is that we cannot seek transformation from God in our hearts to rid ourselves of our depravity and gross sinfulness. Proverbs 4.23 says this. It's up on the screen. Above all else, guard your what? Your heart. Why should I guard my heart? For everything you do flows right out of it. Everything you do flows out of it. 
Jesus said in Luke 6.43, for, no for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. So let's break that down. So let's just take Jesus' words and just use a very poignant hypothetical illustration, right? Jamie and I, up in our subdivision in Drakesboro, behind our house is an apple tree. It's really, we don't have an apple tree, but again, we're pretending, right? Hypothetically, there's an apple tree in the backyard, and every year, this apple tree that we have, it bears inedible and hard, disgusting apples. And finally, Jamie's had enough. (laughs) She comes to her husband, she says, you know what, Corey, is there anything that you can do about this apple tree that bears these disgusting, inedible apples? And in my love and devotion of my wife to storm the gates of hell for her, if need be, I desire to see change like her. And so I go down the street to Harris Teeter, and I decide I'm going to buy three bushels of the most beautiful, red, delicious apples that you have ever seen. I polish them up. They look beautiful. And I go home, and I grab a ladder, and I'm in the backyard, and I take my DeWalt, my 18-gauge, 2-inch Brad Nailer, and I begin nailing these apples to my apple tree. And from 50 yards, my neighbors and anyone who approaches the tree thinks I am the horticulturist of the year. But mind you, my wife now thinks I've absolutely lost it. I'm, I've gone nuts. My question to you is this. What's going to happen to those apples? Well, there's two things that are going to happen, right? The apples that I've nailed to the tree are going to what? They're going to rot. They're going to die. And why is that? Because they're not attached to the tree. Right? For an apple to have nourishment and life, it's got to be attached to the tree. What's the second thing that's going to happen? What happens next year? Those same bad apples are going to return. And brothers and sisters, the danger of good moral teaching is that sometimes we are unintentionally trying to accomplish nothing but good old apple nailing. Right? In in the... In the name of Christian parenting, we can just be about behavioral change. Just change the behavior. Behave. When the heart is what needs changing. In the name of youth ministry, right? I'm the youth minister. You want to know what I'm teaching. Right? Is it just all about issues? Don't fornicate. Don't drink and drive. Don't do drugs. All great things to talk about. But if the heart hasn't changed, if the face hasn't looked Jesus squarely, we're just apple nailing. And we can build the kingdom of God like this at church. Do this. Don't do this. So how does Paul take these two lists, this works of the flesh on one hand, 
fruit of the Spirit on the other? And how does he expect us now to accomplish one and not the other? Is that all Paul's doing here? Is just saying, do this, don't do this? Absolutely not. And so second key step is the gospel must be made clear in all that we do. The gospel must be made clear in all that we do. Frederick Beckner once wrote that every age has produced fairy tales. Every age. Something inside us believes or wants to believe that the world as we know it is not the whole story. We long for the re-enchantment of reality. And so we keep spinning, we keep repeating stories that hold the promise of another world. Right? You step into a wardrobe and you're in Narnia. Right? You're walking through the woods, you come upon a cottage with seven dwarfs. We love to see these movies of transformation, don't we? Frogs become princes. Ugly ducklings become swans. Wooden marionettes become boys. Real boys. These are all features, Beckner says, that the gospel has in common with fairy tales with one great difference. What is it? The gospel is true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Jesus said the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The gospel transforms and changes the hearts of human beings. The gospel changes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. The gospel allows me to say no to the works of the flesh and yes to the fruits of the Spirit. The gospel holds the key to transformation. Which is why in everything that we say from this pulpit and everything that we do as a parish, in all ministries, in all parenting, in our marriages, everything flows from the gospel. Should we talk about behavioral change? Absolutely. But it's in vain if the gospel isn't present. Because the heart of your children, my children, and my heart, my wife's heart, needs changed by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? So verse 24, Paul makes it very clear, doesn't he? To me, it's the key of the passage. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? They have crucified the flesh. How do you not do these things? Crucify the flesh in Christ. We crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. So the gospel must be absolutely crystal clear in all that we do. Third and final key step is to live by the Spirit. We must keep in step with the Spirit. And so I know you are brilliant, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so your question is how in the world do we do that? Right? Because clergy can sometimes get behind the pulpit and we, you know, we say things like, walk in the Spirit of God. Right? Walk in God's Spirit. And you're like, and how do I do that? Like, hocus pocus, or, you know, I mean, I read more. So how do we do this? 
right? How do we do this, Paul? How do we keep in step with the Spirit? And so I think it's this. You, you walk by the Spirit when your heart is resting in the promises of Yahweh and God. The Spirit reigns over the flesh in your life when you live by faith. When you're trusting in God. So I, I think the key is trust. Do you trust God in all things? Living by faith in the Son of God who loved you, who gave himself up for you and is now working everything together for your good. So let me show you this in the last five minutes together from the book of Galatians. We're just going to say right in the book of Galatians. So going back, Galatians 3.23 says this. You can turn there if you want or you can just put your listening ears on. Now, before faith came, we were confined under the law. Now, before faith came, we were confined to the law. We were confined to lists. The coming of faith liberates a person from being under the law. And so, Galatians 5.18 makes this very clear, right? So, right in the chapter we're in, if you look at verse 18, it says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the what? Not under the law, right? That's where Tyler was last week. So how then shall we seek to be led by the Spirit? Very simple. By faith. Faith. Trust. By meditating on the trustworthiness and preciousness of God's promises until our hearts are free of all fretting, all guilt, all greed, the Holy Spirit fills and He leads. Galatians 3.5 Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or what? By hearing of faith. The Spirit does His mighty work in us and through us only by the hearing of faith. We are sanctified by faith alone. The way to walk by the Spirit and so not to fulfill the desires of the flesh is to hear the delectable promises of God, trust them, delight in them, name them. Galatians 2.20, lastly. Galatians 2.20, I have been what? Been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, Christ is living in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. So who is the Christ who lives in Paul? He is the Spirit of God, has four, six Look at chapter 4, verse 6. The Spirit of God's Son has been sent into our hearts. And how, according to 2.20, does the life of the Son produce itself in Paul? How does Paul walk by the Spirit of the Son? He makes it plain. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I'm trusting. Every morning I'm waking up. I'm trusting God. I'm putting faith in God. He's going to supply all that I need. God's my supply. God's where the roots are. God's the power. God's the strength. God's going to supply my food. He's going to give me bread. His kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. So day by day, Paul is seen to be trusting the Son of God. And day by day, he casts his cares on God. He frees his life from guilt and fear and greed. And he's borne along by the Spirit. So how then do we walk by the Spirit? The answer is plain. It's this. We stop 
trying to fill the emptiness of our lives with a hundred pieces of this world and put our souls at rest in God. The Spirit will work the miracle of renewal in your life when you start meditating on His unspeakable promises day and night and resting in them. Will you bow your heads? Pray with me. Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. And Father, I pray over them now that you would bless them and keep them. That you would wash your word over them in such a way that your spirit would quicken hearts, change lives. That there would not be a sense of fear in this world of uncertainty. That there would not be a tendency to dull our spiritual senses with all that's around us. But that we would gaze into the mighty eyes of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeshua, Emmanuel, Adonai, Yahweh, the I Am. Pray that you would deepen our faith, strengthen us for the tomorrows, help us in all tendencies of life, whether it be parenting, marriage, building your kingdom for your sake and your glory. And Father, I pray that above all, in all that we do, whether we eat or whether we drink, and all that we do, I pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be magnified. That at the end of time, and at the mighty name of Jesus, all knees will bow and confess that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. To the glory of the Father. And all God's people said, Amen.